0: Uh, I think that's probably um, the way it was sung in the uh, temple. David's poems were put to music and then were sung and everyone could uh, share in them. Uh, I remember the first time I ever read that psalm in the, in the Hebrew text, I laughed right out loud because the uh, first line actually reads, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his camels. The uh, word for benefits is the Hebrew word gomelin, from which we get our word camels, and which is the uh, word, and that's what David was thinking about, but he was thinking symbolically, of course. God doesn't give camels, he gives other benefits. And if David uh, had thought in terms of one camel, he would have used one word. If he had thought of two camels, he would have used another word. But he uses a form that means three or more camels. And the significance in that is that in the ancient world, uh, the number of camels that you had was an indication of your wealth. If you had one camel, you were wealthy. If you had two camels, you were very wealthy. If you had three or more camels, you were exceedingly wealthy. And then that psalm spells out for us what that wealth is. crowns our head with good things. He redeems us from the pit. He forgives us from our sins. He gives us the desires and the delights of our heart. So it's an indication, again, that the wealth which we possess is not necessarily monetary. Uh, We may be uh, ragged and funny. We may not have a barrel of money, but uh, we're wealthy. We've been enriched wonderfully. And that actually is the theme of the book of Ephesians, the book to which I would like to draw your attention and have you turn this morning. Uh, if you're new to the New Testament, it, uh, it uh, is found uh, past the Gospels. If you uh, will look at the New Testament, the first four books are the Gospels, and then there's the Acts of the Apostles, and then Romans, and then 1 Corinthians, and the book of Galatians, and then the book of uh, Ephesians. While you're turning there, I want to say something about Harden and Maxine Young. Uh, it's just so good to have Maxine up or Maxine Harden up here. <laughs> I do know the difference. Um, what a wonderful couple, and how they've ministered to us through the years through the uh, through their bookstore and just in in hundreds of ways. And as most of you know, they have sold the bookstore and they're moving on to other things. Uh, Please don't uh, comment on Hardin's retirement. He insists, as I do, that we're never going to retire. We're going to die with our boots on, God willing. But uh, both are moving on to other things. Would love to see them uh, have more time to use their gifts of teaching and discipleship and make those available to the body. So let's uh, let's express our appreciation to them as we have opportunities and express our, uh, our love to them. Now, if you found the book of Ephesians, uh, I want to give you a a brief, very brief introduction this morning. And then we'll look at the first uh, six verses. When I read Ephesians, I always think of a tangerine. Because the segments are so easily discerned, Uh, it breaks into, into pieces, into its component parts as you read it. It actually reads more like a formal lecture than a letter. I'll comment more on this later, but I think it, that's exactly what it is. Uh, it is Paul laying down a baseline theology for all of the churches in Asia Minor. Uh, in most of the old and very good manuscripts, the word Ephesus doesn't even occur. Uh, it's either blank or omitted or some other Some other city is, uh, the name of some other city is found there. The reason is that this was probably an encyclical letter. It was uh, sent throughout the churches, the seven churches in Asia Minor, starting with Ephesus. And that's why the name Ephesus found its way into some of the manuscripts. That would be the normal order in which a letter would be sent. If you look at Revelation 1. John is commanded to write a letter to the churches in Ephesus. It starts with Ephesus, the church in Ephesus, and then on through the other seven churches in Asia Minor. This is a book very much like the book of Romans. Uh, It reads like a formal theology, and, and, and I think that's precisely what it is, just as Romans is. My belief is that Romans was... Paul's uh, theology presented to the church in Rome so they could support him in his ministry as he moved on to the west and I believe that Ephesus the, bo- uh, the book of Ephesians was written to the churches in Asia Minor some of which Paul planted others were planted by other, uh, other Christians other apostles and what he's doing is leaving behind a body of apostolic teaching that's why this book is one of the key books in the New Testament which along with the book of Romans lays down a basic platform of thinking for us is, as Christians. As you read through the book, it it breaks right down the middle. Uh, the first three chapters are a description of our wealth in Christ. It's what we have, what we possess, because we're in Christ. The last three chapters, chapters 4, 5, and 6, describe our work I put it like this. The first three chapters are what we are given in Christ. The last three chapters are what we are given to do. The pattern enshrines a principle. God never calls us to any task without providing up front. As I said last week, he makes no unfunded mandates. doesn't ask us to do anything for which he does not give us the resources to comply So what he does in these first three chapters is to fill our hearts full of the worth that we have in Christ, the wealth that's given to us, the the camels, if I can put it that way, all the benefits that are ours because we're in his son, Jesus Christ, and then he tells us what we're to do as a result. The illustration that came to mind this past week uh, is the Powerball sweepstakes. Uh, Suppose you win and you get hundreds of millions of dollars, and it's all deposited in your bank account at one time. And then you're asked to give away a million dollars a year. Well, you cannot keep ahead of the interest. It would accumulate so rapidly. Every time you checked your exchequer, checker you would discover that you had more money in the bank than you had before you gave money away. And that's precisely what Paul wants us to know, that God takes all of the good things out of his heart. He puts it into our hands, and he wants us to give it away to others. And that's the argument of the book. Our worth, our wealth in Christ, and then our work. Jesus said in Matthew 13, he who has will have even more. And that's the principle that lies behind uh, the book of Ephesians. Now, if you look at verse 3... I'm going to comment more on this verse later, but I want you to see this as a thesis statement of the principle I just stated. Verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. The word means enriched. He's made us rich. In in the heavenly realms, with every spiritual blessing uh, in Christ. As I said, our wealth is not financial, it's not material, it's not monetary. It is spiritual. It is forgiveness from all of our sins. It is power to be what God has called it to be. It's the assurance that our destiny is fixed. It's uh, that wonderful knowledge that we are greatly, profoundly loved by God. That's what he means by spiritual blessings. These he'll spell out in the verses to, uh, to follow. And he says, those blessings are in... Heavenly realms. That's the way the NIV translates. One word in the Greek text that's simply heavenlies in, in Paul's text. Heavenlies. That's a word that's unique to the book of Ephesians. Doesn't occur anywhere else. I think Paul must have coined it. it occurs five times in the book to specify that unseen realm that lies behind beyond the the realm of empirical things, uh, things we cannot touch, taste, smell, feel hear That realm in which God dwells, that realm from which he answers, that, answers us, that realm from which prayer brings everything that God has for us into our experience. Uh, Flip Wilson says, what you see is what you get. No, that, that's not true. What you don't see. Paul says, is what you get. Everything from that realm in which God reigns is made available uh, to us. He has enriched us in the heavenly realm with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Uh, Peter puts it another way. He says, God has given to us everything we need. It's an unequivocal promise. Everything we need for life and godliness. We have everything that God has at his disposal in order to live life the way it's intended to be lived, to be to be godly. And I, I tend to forget that. The air gets thick in Narnia. And, and I forget what I have in Christ. I either try to crank it out on my own or I just forget myself and act in uh, despicable ways. And, and it's not always easy to get all of this right. But, see, even our forgiveness comes out of that realm of the Spirit. Even if we don't get it right, it's all right. We can start over. I uh, heard a story this last couple of weeks ago about two men that were playing golf together, never played the game together. And uh, one man uh, tees up a brand-new titleist uh, in the first tee and shanks it off. It goes into a water hazard. Gets out another brand new Titleist, tees it up, slices it into the same water hazard. Gets another brand new Titleist, puts it, puts it on the tee, whacks it into the same water hazard. Guy says, why don't you hit an old ball? Says, I never had one. (laughs) And I, I I understand that. I play life that way. But you see, that we just have to keep remembering what we have in Christ. It's all there. It's all available. All given to us. All deposited. On the front end. We don't have to wait for any of it. He has given us, past tense, all things that pertain unto life and godliness. And the book of Ephesians will spell out for us what those resources, uh, what they are. Now I want to begin with uh, Paul's introduction. Uh, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's Paul's normal introduction. That would be the introduction to any uh, letter during this period. They put their names on the front end so that you don't have to turn all the way to the back to see who wrote. Paul first uh, indicates the, his own uh, uh, the fact that he is the writer, and then he refers to the recipients of of the letter. So that's one thing about himself. Uh, I'm an apostle. An apostle by the will of God. Now, an apostle was a member of a very special elite group. These were the men that were chosen by Jesus during his earthly life, and were sent out by him with authority to teach in his name. There were only a few apostles. There were the twelve, and then there were some others that are mentioned in the New Testament, Barnabas, Andronicus, Junius, and, and a few others. They were commissioned by Jesus and sent out with authority to preach in his name. There's been a lot of research done recently on... On the word that lies behind our word apostle, actually our word is simply a, an anglicized form of the Greek word. The Greek word is apostolos. It comes from two words, apo, which means uh, out, send out, or to, to go out, and uh, stelo, which means to send, one who is has sent out. Scholars tell us that it is the equivalent of a word that was used in Jewish circles, shalya, that comes from the same, comes from an Aramaic root that means precisely the same thing as apostolos. The shalya were the disciples of the rabbis of that time who were sent out with authority to teach in their name. And uh, the New Testament writers uh, and our Lord simply picked up that term and applied it to the twelve, that special group that were sent out to preach and to teach and to heal and to minister and to serve with authority, with the very authority of Jesus Christ himself. Now, Paul describes himself as the chief of sinners. And uh, the, the description that he himself gives of his early life, his hot pursuit of the church, his hatred of Christ makes you wonder, why would God choose such a fool? Why would he choose a loser like Paul? Well, I'll tell you why. That's the only kind of people he has to work with. We're all losers. We're all fools. He doesn't have to make do with fools. He deliberately chooses us. Uh, Mark Twain said, we've got all the fools in town on our side. Ain't that a big enough majority? That's what we are. And yet God has determined, has decided to choose us, just as he chose the Apostle Paul to be be an apostle. Now, there are no apostles today. They're all dead. They all died around the, the uh, the end of the first century. But even though they're dead, like Abel, they still speak, because their writings are enshrined in the New Testament church, Paul tells us, has been built upon the foundation that the prophets, the prophets of the Old Testament and New Testament era, and the apostles. So they're still speaking today. They're speaking to us through their words. And their words have to be accepted with the same authority as Jesus' words. I commented before about my uneasiness, about red-letter Bibles, not that they're wrong to have or to read, as long as we understand that the writings of the apostles have equal authority with the writings of Jesus, or the the sayings of Jesus. Jesus, of course, wrote nothing. Paul says of himself when he wrote to the church in in Thessalonica, when you receive my writings, you receive them not as the word of of men, but as they really are the word of God that is at work among you. So Paul, without any self-consciousness, says, I have the same authority as our Lord does. My words are God's words. So when we read the writings of an apostle, we must take them seriously. Now, Paul designates his readers as saints. In the latter part of verse 1, to the saints in Ephesus, that is the faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, when we think of... uh, Saints, we think of a certain elite class of Christians who are way out of our league—people like Saint Augustine and Saint Teresa of Avila and Saint John of the Cross and Saint Thomas Aquinas and people that have been been canonized by the Catholic Church. These are people that are that are well beyond us in their understanding of God and and their and their character, but. Paul had an entirely different way of looking at at sainthood. The word "saint" is simply another word in both the Old and New Testament for the people of God. That's all it is. I, I, I think a couple of years ago I told you a story about two old brothers that were the just a couple of old com- curmudgeons. They were the most disliked, distrusted dishonest men in town. Nobody could stand them. Everyone was afraid of them and despised them. And one day one of them died. So his brother went to the uh, local minister and he said, I want you to bury my brother. And uh, I want you to call him a saint. And the minister said, I I couldn't do that. I know what kind of a man he was. And he says, well... If you call him a saint, I'll, I'll uh, contribute ten thousand dollars to your building fund. So the minister said, "Well, let me think about this a little bit." And he, he called him back a couple of days later, and he said, "All right, all right, I've got it worked out. We'll we'll do that." So on the day of the funeral, everyone was gathered, and the minister looked over the heads of the people, and he pointed down at the casket, and he says, "Everybody in this audience knows what a what a what a rasty." Evil old man, Henry was, and nobody could trust him. He was the most unscrupulous man in town. But I want you to know that compared to his brother, he's a saint. <laughs> <coughs> so I, I, I guess the, uh, <laughs> the point I'm trying to make is that uh, it's a relative term. But but actually, it, it, the, the, as I said, the term simply refers to the people of, of God throughout history, Israel in the Old Testament and the international community, the Israel of God, as Paul calls them in in the New Testament. It's it's the word in the Old Testament which means it's often translated godly ones. I'm sure you've heard the word Hasidim that refers to a certain group of very conservative uh, Jews, most of whom are now in in Israel it's that word hasidim it comes from a root that that that's associated with that word is translated loving kindness in some of the older versions like the king james the authorized version it often refers to god often refers to the way we relate to god it really had to do in that in that in that uh, culture with with contract with contractual arrangements and and how people related to one another in, in a in a contractual agreement, in a marriage or business contract. It means loyalty to that contract, but it means more than that. It means loving loyalty, and that's why it was translated loving kindness. That's not a bad translation for that term. The, the question is, are the holy ones those that are the objects of God's loving kindness or the subjects of it? Is it that God loves them, or is it they're loyal and loving to God? Well, All the recent studies indicate that it's the, lo- it, it, it's, it's the former. It's, it's that God loves them. It's that he's loyal to them. It's not that the saints are, are so wise and wonderful. It, it's the fact that they are the recipients, the objects of God's profound eternal love picked them out, and, and loved them. Now that gives a whole, whole new meaning to the concept of, of sainthood. See, that's why John the disciple described himself not as the disciple who loves Jesus, but the disciple whom Jesus loves. He realized that he was, he was one of the saints, that is, one of the, those that were the objects of God's, God's loving kindness. So if you're in Christ, if you've made the decision to follow him and you've been and you identify yourself with him, I want you to know that you're one of the hasidim, you're one of the holy ones, you're very kosher because you're the object of God's love. Now that's the introduction Paul an apostle to a group of people in in Asia Minor who are Saints who are deeply, greatly loved by God. Then Paul moves into his benediction, beginning with verse 3. This is one of those uh, texts of which Peter says uh, it's very hard to understand him. I agree. Uh, Paul launches into a long, complex sentence with uh, a number of coordinates, subordinate clauses... The sentence actually, well, it begins in verse 3 and carries uh, through to verse 14. And uh, as you make your way through this long, involved, complex sentence, you can get lost in the blizzard of of words. But if you read very carefully, you'll see that there are four ideas that Paul is concerned with here. One is the fact of his election in verse 4. The other is the fact of our redemption. In verse 7, in him we have redemption. And then in verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance. The NIV says we have been chosen. But if you look at the side note, it refers to the fact that we are heirs of God, joint heirs with his son Jesus Christ, and we have an inheritance that comes from that relationship. And finally, in verse 13, we have been marked with a seal. This is a thumbnail sketch of all of the spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ. You'll notice that phrase in him. It occurs over and over again. Verse four, in him he chose us. Verse seven, in him we have redemption. Verse eleven, in him we have obtained an inheritance. Uh, verse thirteen, you were marked in him with a salt with a seal these are the benefits the blessings the spiritual blessings which we've been uh, we've been granted and then in 15 and following he prays that we will comprehend and apprehend and appropriate all that's been given to us for this reason ever since i heard about your faith in the lord jesus and your love for all the saints i've not stopped giving thanks for you remembering you in my prayers And then he prays, first of all, that we may know God better. And secondly, that we may come to know all that God has given to us. That we know the hope to which we've been called. That we appropriate all the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And that we may know this incomparably great power that we have. We have power to burn, Paul says. See, what Paul does is lay out all of this truth, and then he prays that we may appropriate it, because that's the only way you can translate truth into life. The transmission of, of truth from our heads into our hearts is not a, an intellectual or a mechanical process. It is accomplished through prayer. So if you have a hard time believing anything that, that you're taught in the weeks ahead about this book, don't try to believe it. Ask God To make it real in your hearts. As we read Paul's prayers in this book, I think it will change our way of praying. I think we will no longer pray for Aunt Tilly in Tallahassee who's having a lot of trouble. That God would deliver her from that trouble. We will pray that Aunt Tilly will come to know God through her deepest distress. So she will know that she will know what she has as a result of her relationship with Christ. And cling to him with all of her might. So she will see that all the resources in heavenly places are given to her. So she will know that her destiny is fixed, that no matter what happens to her, she is secure to the end. See, these are the benefits that accrue to us as a result of being in Christ. And these are the things for which we should be praying for ourselves and for others. We'll be exploring all of these gifts in the weeks to come. Now, let's go back to verses 3 through 6. And I want to just touch on a couple of comments that Paul makes. Remember, in this section, he's, he's spelling out the blessings that we have, the enrichment. He's chosen us, redeemed us. Uh, he's given us an inheritance. He's marked us with a seal. Now, I want to spend just a moment talking about uh, this choice of us that he made. Verse 4. He chose us. In him, before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as as his sons through Jesus Christ to himself. Unfortunately, the NIV omits that phrase. I don't understand why, because for myself, that's one of the most significant phrases in, in the entire section. If you have a New American Standard Bible, it clearly says that he has predestined us To be adopted as his sons to himself through Jesus Christ. In accordance with his pleasure and will, that is because he wanted to. Not because he was forced to. To the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Now, um, what Paul is saying is that God has chosen us before the world began before there was a creation, before you you ever saw the light of day, before you were ever born, God picked you out. Maybe you're one of those people, one of those children who as you grow up were never chosen in a game. You were always the last to be chosen. Or maybe you weren't chosen at all. You were left out. Well, I want you to know that that long before you were born, God, God chose you. And as Paul puts it, He chose you for Himself. Now, this is what theologians call a pre-mundane election. Now, theologians go to school a long time and they pay a lot of money to learn those big words, and so we have to permit them to do, to use them periodically, but Basically, all they're saying is what Paul is saying here, that before the creation of the earth, God picked you out. Now, that election is troublesome to a lot of people. I've spent considerable time throughout my ministry trying to explain to people how God can be both sovereign and choose choose us and how we can be responsible and free in our choices. And I finally quit trying to explain it because there are no explanations. It's simply beyond our ken to explain how those two things can be true. As philosophers say, it's an antinomy. It's against the laws of logic that govern our, our thinking. And all of the analogies, all the metaphors we use to try to explain it simply don't explain it because there are no analogies. In, in our experience, that are adequate. You know, the one that's used most, most often is the is door. And over the door it says, whosoever will may come. We walk through the door and we look back and it says, preordained before the foundation of the world. Well, that's helpful, but uh, the truth is both those things are true at the same time. And in our experience, that can't be true. It is a paradox, a pure paradox Now, a paradox is not a couple of physicians that decide to work together. A paradox, a a paradox is two contradictory statements, neither, neither of which can be true if the other is true, and there's simply no way to explain it. When we get to heaven, God will explain it to us. When we say that God that God's knowledge, his wisdom is infinite. We are not saying he knows more than we do. He is saying that his knowledge operates in an entirely different realm. The closer you get to God, the more paradoxical, paradoxical things become. Because God himself is a paradox. He can't be understood. So what I'm saying is, let's us don't stumble over what seems to be two contradictory ideas. They are, but the apostles who wrote these things down in the New Testament were exceedingly intelligent men, and they certainly could see that that these are difficult things to understand, and they never bothered to explain them, because they couldn't. It's far more important that we simply look beyond the, the complexity of this issue to the beauty and the grandeur of it. And that's what Paul does. He does not explain the paradox. He does not tell us how God can be sovereign and how we can be totally free and responsible. He simply says it's true. Now let's see what benefits accrue to us as a result. So he says four things about our election. The first is that he chose us to make us good. George MacDonald says, we have been called into the family of God so he can make us good and beautiful children. That's his goal. That's his aim. Notice how Paul puts it. He has chosen us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless. See, our, our Lord, who is our big brother, was holy and blameless. He's described that way in the book of Hebrews. Without blemish. He's the Lamb of God, without spot. Perfect. Paul prays both in Ephesians and in the book of 1 Thessalonians that we may be holy and blameless. Uh, In that wonderful passage where he describes our marriages as an analogy of Christ in the church, it says God gave himself to us. Christ gave himself to us that we might be holy and blameless before him. That's the purpose to which we've been called. It's the reason why he, he chose us. And all through our lives, he's revising and, refining and shaping and perfecting and maturing and moving us toward that day that we see him and it all falls into place and we'll be just like him. As the Westminster Catechism says, the chief end of man is to know God and enjoy him forever. That's true, but God's chief end is to make us just like his son Jesus Christ. One of these days we're going to see him, and we're going to be just like him. He who has begun a good work in you, Paul says, will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. So what if you fail? Everyone fails. You pick yourself up, you dust yourself off, you thank you for the le- thank God for the lessons that you've learned from that failure, and you move on. It's not hopeless. Sometimes we look at our lives and we, I, we can't see what's going on. We don't believe that God is at work, but by faith and by prayer, we can believe that God is at work both to will and to, and to do of his good pleasure. And he will not give up on us until we're just like his son. Now, that won't happen in this life, but one day we'll see him and we'll be just like him. He elected us so that one day we'll be holy and blameless before him. Second thing I want you to observe is that his choice is based upon his love. It's the product of his love. Uh, look at the last part of verse 4 and the first part of verse 5. Unfortunately, the phrase got separated in, in, in the versification that early uh, found its way into the text. The in love actually belongs with verse 5. In love having predestined us. The main verb in the, in the whole section is he chose us. He predestined us as a participle. It ought to be translated like this. He chose us in love having predestinated us. His motive was love. There is no greater motivation in our God than than, than love. He hates our sin. He's wrathful against our sin, but he loves us. And on the basis of that love, he has predestined us. Now, that's another one of those difficult words, predestination. But let me try to explain it for you. Uh, The the Greek word is is pro-horizo. Now, pro means before. Horizo is the word from which we get a word horizon. It means means the boundaries of something. Here's what predestination means. It means that, that long before you were ever born, before you were even a twinkle in your father's eye before the universe ever came into being. God loved you. And he drew a little circle around you that in, that included you. He drew out the horizons, the dimensions. The he, he put a little corral around you because he loved you. Does not mean that he saw what you were going to do, what kind of person you were going to become. He simply loved you and chose you on the basis of, of that love before you ever had a chance to do anything good, bad, or indifferent. There's an analogous word that's often used in the New Testament. Paul uses it frequently. It's the word foreknowledge. People say, oh, I know what that means. That God knows beforehand what we're going to do, and on the basis of having chosen Christ, we're, we're elect. No, that's not what that word means at all. Paul would have used an entirely different word if he'd wanted to convey that concept. The word, the Greek word that lies behind uh, foreknowledge is our, is pro, again, before. And the word knowledge, which is the word gnosko, which all the way through the New Testament and in classical Greek as well, conveys the idea of an intimate and personal love. It's used of the most intimate and personal marriage relationships. God knew you in that personal way. It's not that he knew what you were going to do. Or how you were going to behave. It's that he knew you long before time began. He looked down through history and he saw you. And he picked you out because he loved you. He did not go one potato, two potato, three potato, four. It's not an arbitrary choice. It's not a capricious decision. He chose you because he loves you. In love, he predestined you. Now the third thing that he tells us is that we're chosen for sonship. Simply, I simply want to, I want to explain as quickly as possible that the adoption to which he refers here is not like our adoption procedures today in the Roman world. A son was adopted when he reached the age of majority, 12, 13 years of age. He was placed before the community, and the father would say, this is my adult son, he now is the recipient of all that's, all of my resources. He's the heir. And it's that that our Lord has in mind. We come into his family, as sons and despite our weakness and our immaturity and our failure he says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased because he's in my son the Lord Jesus. And because we're in Christ we're a recipient of all that's given to his son. Final thing that I want you to note is that he chose us for himself. Paul intimates in the first verb he chose us that that's so he uses a reflexive form of the verb that probably should be translated he chose us for himself, but he elaborates on that on that truth in verse 5 he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. For himself. See, as I said, the Westminster Catechism says that the chief end, our chief end, is to know God and enjoy him forever. I want you to understand that God's chief end is to know you and enjoy you forever. That's why he chose us. See, again, it wasn't some arbitrary choice. It was out of his longing for us, his yearning for us. The Father is seeking such to worship him. He does it for himself as well as for our sake. I think of all these Pygmalion stories, you know, like My, My Fair Lady and others, where some benefactor notices this poor, miserable, poverty-stricken, wretched individual and pours out his love and all of his, uh, everything he has at his disposal to, to make a new life for this person and then, then brings that person into his life, marries uh, her and and enjoys a relationship forever. So it is with God. See. That's why He chose you. Because He wants to spend His eternal life with you. That's why He died for you. He'd do anything you see, to draw you to Himself. I've often, I have often quote Chesterton's statement. The whole Bible is about the loneliness of God. He's seeking, yearning, longing for our fellowship, our love. That's what heaven is all about. He prepared a place So that we can be for him, with him forever. Oh, it's colossal joy for us, but it's also his joy to know that, that he can spend the rest of our eternal years with him. He delights in us. He likes you. He enjoys you. He wants you to be with him forever. I, I want to uh, close with a poem that I, I have read to you before I tried to read the poem, and it's so difficult to read and so hard to understand when it's read that no one even understood what I was saying last time I read it. But I don't know who wrote it, but it, it pictures God as a potter. And he takes a piece of uh, shapeless clay, just a mass of mud, and he drops it on the wheel. The wheel begins to whirl. And with his hands, he begins to He begins to shape it into a cup. All the probing, all the delving, all the changing of the shape, all the the work that he does with his hands, all the hardship on the clay is all designed to make it into into a cup. The poet then asks the reason for this shaping, and the answer follows. Look not down, but up for the reason for the cup, he says. The reason for the shaping is not to be found on this earth, it's to be found in heaven. The cup, he goes on to explain, is meant for the master's table. The festal board, lamps flash and trumpets peal, the new wine's uh, foaming flow, the master's lips aglow. He pictures a banquet table with our Lord seated at the table and the cup is placed at his uh, place setting. And so for the poet, everything falls into place, all of life's joys and sorrows, all the hurt, all the pain, all the enjoyment, everything that God brings to us in this life is part of that shaping, making process in order to form a cup in which God can take delight, which he can enjoy forever. And he writes, not even while the whirl was worst, it is while he was on the wheel and, and, the, and the process for him was exceedingly painful, He says, did I mistake my end to slack your thirst? You understand what he's saying? That the cup is all for God. And it's to slack his thirst. It's it's to swage his longing. It's to satisfy his need for us. And so he concludes, so take and use your work. Amend what flaws may lurk. Go ahead, change me, no matter how painful the process. My times are in your hand. Perfect the cup as planned. Let age approve of youth and death complete the same. When, when we go to be with the Lord or when he comes for us and the cup is finished, and it's given to our Lord to be enjoyed forever. What he's saying is God is thirsty for us. and We're being prepared to, to slack his thirst for all time and all eternity. And I ask you, why? What is this all about? Well, Paul wraps it up in the last verse of this section. It's to the praise of his glorious grace throughout eternity. We will sing his praises because of his gracious dealings with us, which he has freely given to us in the one he loves. God's love is a gift that he's been dying to give from eternity. And in His earthly life here in the Incarnation, He was dying every day. The cross was simply the consummation of that desire of His to give Himself wholly to us so that we can give ourselves to Him so He can enjoy us forever. That's why He picked you up. Let's pray. This is mystery. We cannot understand all that Paul is describing for us here but we can enjoy it what an encouragement it is to us to know that uh, your choice of us was to the end that we might be holy and blameless that we might take our place beside your son our big brother and be like him Thank you for that redemption that makes it possible, for the forgiveness of past sin, for the power that enables us to cooperate with you in what what you've promised to do in our our lives. Thank you for that that wonderful promise that we cannot out-sin your grace and your goodness, and that you will perfect the work that you've begun in us. Lord, make us cooperative. Make us soft and submissive under your will. Make us women and men of prayer who take this truth. Take it seriously and pray it into our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.